You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, we take great delight in your Word. We know that in your Word you sanctify your people, and through your Word you edify us and equip us and reprove us and rebuke us and encourage us. You do all of these things through your Word, some of them simultaneously. We thank you that your Word is deep and profound, and in it we find life for our souls and truth about who you are and who we are. And all of this we know as we approach your Word, and it is our desire that you would be delighted to teach us this morning and send your Spirit to be our guide that in spite of the frailty of communication and hearing, that you would be glorified here to do a work in our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 11, the first seven verses, let's read them together. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he had heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. Now we're going to start this morning working through this 11th chapter of John's Gospel and this Resurrection, uh, death and resurrection of Lazarus is the seventh of the seven signs, the last of the signs of, in John's gospel. Uh, this miracle is probably the most, the best known out of all seven of the miracles that John records. And there's something about it being maybe just fun to tell the story, fun to imagine being there, fun to imagine being in that place. And because it is so magnificent and so memorable, it has found its way into almost every Sunday school curriculum and VBS curriculum that you've probably ever laid your eyes on in your whole life. Because there's something about this miracle that speaks volumes about who Christ is and what he is going to do. Uh, Not just what he did, but there's volumes here that speaks about what he is going to do. And we're going to find that out later in the 11th, in, in this chapter. This is the only place in all of the Gospels where the resurrection of Lazarus is mentioned. It's not covered by Matthew, Mark, or by Luke. Those three Gospel writers don't mention it, as I mentioned this last week. And that has led some people to conclude or to speculate that this never really happened. And by some people, I don't mean anybody in this room, hopefully, but by some people, I mean skeptics, liberals, agnostics, atheists, people who like to deny the supernatural. They say since John is the only Gospel writer to mention this, It likely didn't happen at all. In fact, likely, they would say, John was just making this story up in order to illustrate a spiritual truth. So John's just kind of telling a myth or a legend or a a story in order to illustrate the truth that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so they base that argument upon the fact that only John mentions it. And it's not mentioned by Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And it shouldn't disturb us that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention it. These same people who would question the authenticity of this miracle because it is only recorded in John are the same people who will question the authenticity of any miracle in the New Testament, even if it is recorded in two or three Gospels. 
In fact, those same people would question the authenticity of this miracle if it was recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. Because with people who question Scripture, it's never an issue of how many times it's mentioned or how reliable they think it is. They don't believe that anything supernatural is reliable. The same people would deny that Jesus rose from the dead bodily, even though it's mentioned in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, and it is the linchpin of every other book in the New Testament. So there's nothing in this account that ought to cause us to question that it's actually happened, that it actually happened just as it did. There are details here which are fascinating. And the fact that John is the only one that mentions this just reminds us of something that I've been saying since the beginning of John's Gospel. John was aware of what Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote, and he included intentionally material that the other Gospel writers did not include. If everything Jesus had said and done had been written down, the world would not be able to contain the books that could be written. So John is intentionally including for us details and events from the life of Christ that shine a unique light upon who Jesus is and what he has done. So this miracle, the resurrection of Lazarus, actually takes up a lot of space in the 11th chapter. You'll see that it goes all the way down through the end of verse 44. And then verses 45 through the end of the chapter talk about the, the ramifications, the implications of what happened and the results of that among the Jewish uh, and the Jews and the leadership. So today we're just going to tackle these first seven verses and we're going to note three things about the sickness of Lazarus and this illness that he had. We're going to know first of all their desire, that is Mary and Martha's desire in Lazarus's illness. Second, God's design in it, verse 4. And then the third thing, we're going to notice Jesus' delay. Their desire, God's design for this illness, and then Jesus' delay in Lazarus's illness. Let's look first of all at their desire. Verse 1, now a certain man was sick. Now, let's stop there for just a second. This is kind of an interesting or curious way for John to introduce Lazarus. Verse 1 introduces us to three characters, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. It's very interesting that John would just refer to Lazarus as a certain man. That is actually the type of language that he would use to describe somebody who is nondescript, somebody who maybe was unknown, just a certain man, like an ordinary man. But come to find out, Lazarus was not just a certain man, was he? He's Lazarus. And his miracle actually is spoken of all the way into the final week of Jesus' life. And everybody in Jerusalem was talking about Lazarus and this miracle. And not only that, but Lazarus was a good, personal, close friend of Jesus. And not just Lazarus, but Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, were good, close, personal friends of Jesus. So he wasn't just a certain man. He wasn't just an ordinary man. So one wonders, why does John introduce Lazarus as a certain man? As if he's nondescript. This is just a plain ordinary individual, and in fact, he's not ordinary at all. It may be that this is John's subtle way of saying, look, don't focus on Lazarus. Who is the miracle really about? Jesus. We find out later on, everybody's talking about Lazarus. Everybody comes not only to see Jesus, but also Lazarus. And everybody's discussing Lazarus and the implications of this resurrection. And this is John's way of saying, look, Lazarus is a significant individual But keep in mind, he is incidental to the story, and that's what we need to remember. It doesn't matter that Lazarus is close to Jesus. It doesn't matter that he was a good friend. It doesn't matter that he was a friend of the family or that he was well-known in the area. All of that is non-essential information. We should just view Lazarus as just a certain man. Now, a certain man was sick, verse 1. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Now, as I said, there's three individuals mentioned here. We'll talk a moment about Mary and Martha. Uh, Lazarus is kind of an interesting character because he didn't mention anywhere else in Scripture. As I said, this is the only place in the Gospels where 
this resurrection is mentioned, but this is the only place in the Gospels where Lazarus is mentioned. There was one other Lazarus talked about in Scripture. Does anybody remember where it was from? There's one other place where Lazarus is mentioned in the Scripture. It's Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus was the beggar who ate the crumbs off the rich man's table. And uh, when both of them died, the, the beggar was taken to Abraham's side, that is paradise or heaven, and the rich man went to his place of torment. And there is that conversation in Luke 16 across the unca- uh, unbridgeable chasm that exists between those two places. That's not the same Lazarus. It's a different Lazarus. Lazarus was actually a very common name. It is the Greek form of the Old Testament Hebrew name Eleazar. And it is a very common name even in Jesus' day. It's not like there was only a couple of guys named Lazarus. It was a com- as common or ordinary a name as Jim or John or Tim or, or Jack today. So it's a very ordinary and common name. Today, the name Lazarus actually lives on in the name of the village, Bethany. If you go to the land of Israel today or you go to a map today and you're trying to look up the city of Bethany, you won't find any Bethany that's anywhere near Jerusalem. Do you know what the name of that city is today? The name of that city or that town today outside of, of Jerusalem is called El Azariah. El Azariah. Can you hear the name Lazarus in there? That's actually an Arabic form or an Arabic city's name. And the name of Lazarus lives on in the name of Bethany today. The name that town today is named after Lazarus because he made it notable. Bethany itself is not a notable town. It's just two miles outside of Jerusalem on the south and the east side. If you're going from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's like good grief, Idaho. If you blink, you miss it. As you're walking through, it's just a small town on the side of the Mount of Olives facing away from the city of Jerusalem. Very nondescript, very ordinary, very plain, just a small village. But there were three notable figures there, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, you may be wondering, is this the same Mary and Martha that had the tift later on between the two of them. Do you remember that? Tell her to get up and do something. She's sitting there listening to you, and I'm doing the dishes and getting everything ready. Is this the same Mary and Martha? It is. And we're going to learn later on more about these two, but I just want you to notice how John introduces them in verse 11, or verse verse 2, chapter 11. I always get sidetracked when I switch chapters. I spend so much time in one chapter, I'm used to saying chapter 10, and then I get my numbers mixed up. So if I say a number and it doesn't compute with something on your page, just translate for me. Verse 2, it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with the ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So it is that Mary. And John feels the necessity of telling us which Mary it is because in the Gospels there are no less than four different women called Mary. If you think Lazarus was a common name, Mary was even more common. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the sister of Martha. Four different Marys that Jesus knew of in his life and his ministry. So John specifies it was... None of the other Marys, it was the Mary who anointed Jesus with her hair, or anointed Jesus with the ointment and wiped her hair with his feet. Now, interestingly, John doesn't even mention that until chapter 12. But he mentions it here in chapter 11, referring to something he hasn't even described yet. And you know what that tells us? That tells us something. That tells us that, why is everybody grinning? Did I just say something weird? I'll go back and listen to it later. I don't know why everybody's laughing. Everybody laughs, I didn't say anything funny. I say things funny, you don't grin. All right. What that tells us is that that John, in writing to his audience, knew this story of the anointing of Jesus with the ointment. His audience knew that so well that they knew that Mary associated with that story. And John can just reference it before he even goes to the trouble of describing it later on in chapter 12. He mentions something here he hasn't even told us about because he knows that everybody reading this is already going to know, oh, that Mary. That's how well known this couple was, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, these three siblings. All right. Verse 3. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. 
Now, there's one thing you're going to pick up from the first three verses, and that is that Lazarus was sick. It's mentioned in verse 1. It's mentioned in verse 2. It's mentioned in verse 3. Here's what we can conclude. Lazarus was sick. This is the key feature of that first verse. Everything else revolving around it, it's, it's Mary whose brother Lazarus was sick. A certain man named Lazarus was sick. This is the one who was sick. Lord, the one whom you love is sick. Here's the issue. He's sick. Somebody needs to help him. He's sick. Now, what sickness did Lazarus has, have? Wouldn't you like to know? We don't know what it was. Was it a serious sickness? It was obviously something that in this day, at least, maybe not today, we don't know this, but in this day, it was a precursor to death. Lazarus was sick enough from this that they felt it necessary to ask Jesus to do something about his sickness. Now, do you notice something odd about their statement to Jesus in verse 3 when they say, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick? There's something odd there. I didn't catch it. It took me a bit to notice it. There's no request there. Did you notice that? They don't, they don't ask him to do anything about it. They just inform him. The one whom you love is sick. And you and I, probably most people in this room, I would say, know what it is like to sit by the bedside of a loved one, a friend, or a family member who is sick, ill, and facing death. And to wish that you could do something to change that situation. To wish that you had the ability to bring healing or to take the sickness yourself or to pull all the suffering onto yourself to alleviate that. We know the angst that that brings when you, when you get that diagnosis and you know that this could very well end in death. In all likelihood, this is a diagnosis, not just of an illness, but of a death. This is terminal. And we understand what that feeling of angst and worry and then, and all the questions that come up. Mary and Martha went through all of that, so it is very understandable, having gone through that some of us ourselves, it is very understandable that when their brother came down sick, that they would think of whom? Jesus. Now, if you were sitting by the bedside of a loved one, watching them suffer through a sickness that you knew in all likelihood is going to end in death, and it's going to end in death real soon, and at the same time you knew somebody who had miracle-working ability, who had healed the sick and raised the dead on a previous occasion, would you tell them? You would, wouldn't you? Not only would you tell them, but you would say, Come and do something. Come here quickly. Come quickly. Do something about this. But they don't do that. That's what's curious about their statement. He whom you love is sick. And they don't ask him to come. Why didn't they ask him to come? Do you think that they knew the danger that Jesus was in in Jerusalem? Only two miles away? They knew how the religious leaders felt about him. They knew that as far as the Pharisees were concerned, Jesus was a marked man. And they knew that by requesting that Jesus come from Perea back to Bethany, only two miles outside of Jerusalem, a quick walk, they knew that they were asking him to endanger himself and imperil himself, and they don't even request that he do that because they knew that the danger was real. They're just simply informing Jesus of, of the situation. Not that really I think Jesus even needed to be informed, but that's what they're doing. He whom you love is sick. Now it might be that they're thinking to themselves, maybe Jesus is able to do something from a distance. We've seen that already in John, haven't we? At the end of chapter 4 with the nobleman's son, the nobleman came to Jesus and told him of his son and asked Jesus to do something. And Jesus just simply said, go, your son lives. And the man went and he was met by another group of people bringing the message on his way back to his home. Your son lives. And at the certain hour he got well. And the man knew that it was at that time that Jesus said to him, your son lives. So maybe having known Jesus' ability not just to heal the sick, but to heal the sick from a distance, they just simply inform Jesus, trusting that if he wants to, he can even do it from a distance. He doesn't have to be here. He doesn't have to come here. So they don't request that he come. They just give him the information. I think there's something else going on here as well, and it's this. I think that this is really the attitude of people who genuinely trust Jesus to do what is right and what is good. 
They just simply lay the case out before the Lord and then they just realize if he chooses to come, that's best. If he chooses to do it from a distance, that is best. If he chooses to allow Lazarus to get sick, then that is what is best. If he chooses to allow Lazarus to die, then that is what is best. All we need to do is inform the Lord and trust the Lord to do what is wise and right and good. Lay the case out before him and trust him to do whatever he might deem to be best. That, I think, is the attitude of true, genuine, believing prayer. Sometimes we can cross the line in our prayers from petitioner to advisor. You done that? Lord, here's my situation. And here are all the good ways that you could deal with it. You could do this, and you could do this, and it would really be good if you did this. And then if this happens, here's another way that you can handle this in a really, in a really good way. As if in our minds, we do this, and we've all done it. I've done it. As if in our minds, we're thinking to ourselves, God needs my advice. He needs some good ideas from me. Do you think he's in heaven saying, that's a good idea? No, I hadn't thought about that. That, it's good, Jim. I'm glad you came up with that. Who has, who has taught the Lord or been his counselor? Sometimes it is sufficient to simply say, Lord, here's my situation. I don't know what to do. So just please deal with it. If you handle it this way, that is best. If you do it this way, that is best. Whatever you choose, it is best. Because I believe that God is good and sovereign, then I can rest in whatever decision He makes regarding my situation. And all that Mary and Martha are doing is simply informing the Lord and entrusting Him with the situation and then leaving it at that and resting in the sovereign goodness of one that they know is able to change or alleviate their situation if he should so choose. And we need to be careful that we don't cross from petitioner into counselor because that's very easy to do. Sometimes the best prayer is just simply to say, Lord, this is it. And then move on. Because there are times, do you face this? When you got something that you want to pray about, but you don't even know how to pray about it. I don't even know what to do about this. But this is the situation. And I realize that, that my prayers in trying to inform God are so filled with foolishness and vanity and emptiness and selfishness and the wrong perspective to try and offer Him counsel is just me pouring out the folly of my insanity to the King of the universe who knows far better than I do how to handle the situation. So be like Mary and Martha. Just inform the Lord. Not that He needs your information. You understand that as well. But pour out your heart to the Lord. Give him your situation, then trust him for whatever it is that is best. And look at verse 3, how, she, how they worded to him, Lord, behold, who, he whom you love is sick. There's something interesting about that. They don't say, he who loves you is sick. Do you notice that? They say, he whom you love is sick. If they had phrased it the other way, if they had said, Lord, Lazarus, who really loves you, is sick, then it might have sounded like they were trying to pull on his heartstrings or that they were trying to uh, sort of coerce him into doing something. Uh, Lord, the one who really genuinely loves you, he is sick. And because he loves you, you ought to do something for him. No, no, these two ladies have their theology right. It is not my love for Christ that is the significant thing in my relationship with him. It is his love for me that counts. My love for him is, is faulty and failing and frail, and it fluctuates from day to day. It grows strong, it grows cold, it grows weak with the things that go on in this life. My love for him is unreliable at best. And even my greatest love for Christ and the moments where my heart is filled with the most love for Him, even that love is tainted by selfishness and sinfulness and pride and all of the things that are part of this fallen humanity. But His love for me never changes, right? And if if the goodness that Christ does for me 
is determined by my love for him, then how good would he be to me? Wouldn't be very reliable, would it? But thankfully, it is not the sheep's love for the shepherd that is the basis of the good that the shepherd does for the sheep. It is the shepherd's love for the sheep which generates all of the goodness that the sheep enjoy. So the significant thing about the relationship between Jesus and Lazarus was not that Lazarus loved and served and worshipped Jesus. It is that Jesus loved Lazarus. And that really is the foundation for any good. If I can ever hope for God to do anything good toward Jim Osmond, it can only be because he loves me, not because I love him. If I'm resting on it because I love him, then I'm resting upon a faulty foundation. But he loves me, and because he loves me, he will be good to me. And he will look out for my good. That's what they're trusting in. That's their desire. Lord, here's the situation. Do what is best in this situation. The one whom you love is sick. And it is because you love him that you will do what is best for him so we can trust you. Now look at the second thing, and that is God's design in this illness. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard this, he said, The sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now that is a tough verse to fit into some people's theology. It is a tough verse, even if it fits in your theology, it is a tough verse to really hold on to and embrace fully what is being said there. When Jesus said this sickness is not to end in death, he didn't mean that Lazarus wasn't going to die because Lazarus did die. But what Jesus meant was the ultimate end of this sickness that Lazarus is experiencing, the ultimate outcome of this is not death. Lazarus would go through death, but it wasn't going to end in his death because Jesus knew that Lazarus was sick and Jesus knew what he was going to do for Lazarus and for Mary and Martha. Further, when Jesus says this is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it, I want you just to notice in verse 4 the intimate connection between the glory of the Son and the glory of the Father or the glory of God. The glory of the Son is intricately connected to the glory of God and the glory of the Father. Just as it is impossible to honor God without honoring His Son, so it is impossible to glorify God without glorifying His Son. Verse 4 is another statement of the deity of Christ and how intricately linked the glory of Christ is with the glory of God. This sickness was going to result in not only the glorification of God, but ultimately in the glorification of Christ. Now it is easy for us to say, well, I've read through John chapter 11 and I can see how Jesus is glorified in the suffering of Lazarus. I can get that. I can read through here and I can see all of the ways that the glory of Christ was manifested in this miraculous miracle. But Jim, what is more difficult for me is to understand how God is glorified in the suffering that I endure. We're going to get to that in just a second. I want you to think of all of the ways that Christ is glorified through this miracle. Now, if we read through John chapter 11, I'm going to borrow from the stuff that we're going to be looking at in the weeks to come. There are a few different ways that Christ received glory from this. First of all, he says in verse 15, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. The very first way that Christ was glorified through this miracle is by increasing the faith and the belief of the disciples. That glorifies God. When our faith is strengthened, when our faith is increased, and when we believe, that brings glory to the Son, and it brings glory to God. Just as unbelief dishonors God, true, genuine belief honors him. When we trust him, he is glorified by that. And that's what he was saying. I'm going to increase your faith through this so that you might believe upon me and that would result in his glory. The son would be glorified and the father would be glorified. Second, as a result of this miracle, many people came to believe. Many believed in his name. Verse 45, the people who stood by, the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. So when sinners turn from their wickedness and believe upon the son for who he is, that glorifies the son and that glorifies the father. 
And the third thing is that these folks who watched this miracle because of Lazarus' sickness, they would get a full understanding of who Christ was. They would see some element of his nature and his character that they had not up to this point seen. Jesus demonstrated to them that he was the living water by healing the man at the pool. He showed them that he is the bread of life by multiplying bread and fish. He showed them that he's the light of the world by giving sight to the blind man. And he is going to show to these people that he is the resurrection and the life by raising Lazarus from the dead. So each one of these signs and each one of these miracles reveals something of the person of Christ. Every time a miracle is done, we see some element of his person, his work, his character, his glory that is put on display. And in doing this, as people came to a fuller understanding that, ah, he's not just the healer of the sick. He can do that. We understand that. But he's also the resurrection and the life. And by understanding him more fully, they glorify the Son and they glorify the Father. And there's a fourth way that he would be glorified by this miracle. What ultimately is the most glorious thing about the Lord Jesus Christ? When you think about the glory of Christ, what event stands out as that thing which brings so much honor and glory to Jesus Christ? One single event. It's the cross. It's the glorious cross. It's the glory of the cross. The cross is His glory, and we can boast in it because God is glorified in the cross. How does the resurrection of Lazarus play into the cross? What happened as a result of the resurrection of Lazarus? The Jews plotted together to kill him, and they put into place, because of the resurrection of Lazarus, they put into place a plan to murder Jesus. So the event which brings him the most glory, which is his death, and ultimately his burial, his resurrection, and his exaltation, that was put into motion by this resurrection of Lazarus. So Jesus knew that the resurrection of Lazarus would result in his glory, and that would result from his sickness and his death. Lazarus would get sick. Lazarus would die. Lazarus would be resurrected. The Jews would respond to that and crucify him. And the Son of God would be glorified by everything that unfolds out of this miracle. It would be to his glory. But now you say, how does that then play into my life? I understand how God might be glorified in the resurrection of Lazarus. But how is he glorified in my sickness or my illness, my weakness, and my infirmity? How do these things apply to me? Well, you've got to get to the theology behind verse 4. And I want you to read it again. This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God. And I want to ask you this question. I say this with all seriousness. Do you believe that God is glorified by sickness and death? Do you believe that God is glorified in and by sickness and death? If you cannot embrace that, then you cannot give any other legitimate reason why God would allow them into his creation. I do not want to live in a world where sickness and death take God by surprise, where it is unintended, it is unused, it's unnecessary, and it's unproductive. But the promise that we have is that God has allowed these things into his creation because they glorify him ultimately. God will be glorified by every evil thing that happens in some way or another, by bringing it to good, by bringing redemption out of it, by allowing it to happen it will re resound to His glory in some way. We may not see how that is, but we have to be convinced that if He can be glorified through the sickness and the death of Lazarus, that He can be glorified through your sickness and your death, even if He doesn't raise you from the dead three days or four days after you die. Do you believe that God is able to be glorified by sickness and by death? If you don't believe that, 
then you're stuck with a God who didn't foresee evil coming and allowed evil to come into his creation or couldn't stop evil from coming into his creation. And as a result of that, it is all purposeless evil. I don't believe there's any purposeless evil. None of it. All of it will in some way be ultimately for the good of God's glory. Now you say, Jim, I don't understand how that can be. I don't understand how there can be a purpose in that evil. How much of what you endure or you suffer, let me put it a different way, how much of what God is doing do you think that you and I are privy to? Let's round it up. Let's say 1%. Be real generous. That of all that God is doing in my life and your life and the lives of all those people around us and every situation that arounds us, through whatever illness or infliction or infirmity or disaster or horrible situation that you're in, let's round it up and say that you're actually privy to probably 1% of what God might be doing through that. So don't you think it's possible then that in the 99% of what He has hidden from you, that there might be some good reason why He has allowed that to happen to you? Do you think it's possible that God might be doing something that He has kept from you because if He told you or revealed to you or allowed you to see what He is doing, it would actually undercut what he's trying to do in your life. Is that possible? I think it's possible. And maybe one of the reasons why God hides so much of what he is doing through our affliction is because if he showed us what he was doing through our affliction, it actually would undermine the whole process. And the part of it is just trusting him. That I, don't, I don't know all of what's going on, but I know that he is able to work everything out for my good and to the good of those who are called according to his purpose. I know that all of these things are working to good, that God is going to be glorified in this, And if God is the most glorious being in all of the universe, and if everything that God has done from creation to everything He has decreed and allowed to happen is ultimately working toward the consummation of all things and His ultimate and eternal glory, if that's the confidence that I have, then I'll tell you this, I can suffer any affliction or any horrible situation or any disease or any illness, and I can face death with confidence. I don't have a problem with that. Why? Because I understand that all of it is working out toward His glory. That's the aim of it. That's the goal of it. And He is glorified in sickness and in death. Now, that is the polar opposite of what you and I are taught in the word-faith theology. And we've dealt with this before with Justin Peters and, and things that we've talked about, word-of-faith theology, which teaches God is only glorified if you're healthy and wealthy. And if you're sick or if you're poor, then God can't be glorified because that's the devil's work. God is only glorified when everything is going smoothly for you. Where did we get this idea that, the, that life's difficulties are the measure of God's love for us? Where do we get this idea that, that God's blessing or God's favor or God's love for me is to be measured by whether or not I live a, a good or an easy life? Where do we get that idea? And even though some of us don't embrace word of faith theology, we embrace another error which is, is just as subtle and just as hor- hor- horrible. And that is the error of thinking that if something bad happens in my life, it can only be because God is displeased with me. And I've actually had pastors and Christians say this to me. Such and such is happening. God must not love me as much as he does the person in the pew in front of me because the person in the pew in front of me is having everything's going smoothly for them. See, that's part of your insanity is you think the person in the pew in front of you has an easy life. They don't. What makes you think that an easy life is a measure of God's blessing? Might it be that your affliction or your horrible thing or your sickness or your illness or your weakness or your infirmity, might it be that that is not God's discipline on you but God's blessing to you? Could that be? Could it be that in affliction and suffering and in pain and in agony and in these horrible situations that that is the most powerful tool imaginable that God has to bring us to himself and to take our eyes off of this world and place them on him and to draw us near to him? So then I ask you, Christian, why would you want to be free of that? 
Why would you want to be free of that? Why do we kick against that goad? Why do we think that God is displeased with us if we're suffering affliction? Rather than just embracing it and saying, this is something I can thank God for and I can grow in this and He is using this to sanctify me. If God will use this to make me more like Christ, why would I be want to be rid of that? It can only be because we think that the only way God can make us like Christ is if everything goes swimmingly. And that the measure of His love for us is when everything goes swimmingly. That is not true. That is a lie. That is a lie that the devil tells us so that we would kick against God's process in our lives rather than submitting to it and trusting Him because we know that He is good and that He loves us. And all of this eventually has to come down to verse 5. We have to be convinced of this. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus loved Lazarus, Lazarus was sick, and Lazarus died. Can you put all that together? Can you put all of this together, that not only did Jesus love Lazarus, but Jesus loved Mary, and Jesus loved Martha, and I just should say there is nothing inappropriate about any of these uses of of the word love. This is all completely legitimate, familial, friendly, sacrificial servant love that is being described here. Jesus loved Mary, and Jesus loved Martha, And look what Jesus allowed Mary and Martha to go through. All of the uncertainty and the suffering and the loss and the death of their their brother and the mourning and the weeping that went with that. He allowed them to go through all of this hard time as well as Lazarus. All three of them. And John reminds us in verse 5, the inaction of Jesus in verse 6 is not due to a lack of love. In fact, you have to take verse 5 and verse 6 together and now look at the delay of Jesus in verse 6. So when he had heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, hold on a second. Two days longer. Couldn't he have left immediately? And, and the sisters say when Jesus finally arrives, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And Jesus delayed. He took two days. He waited. He got news. He waited two full days before he ever did anything or moved. And John wants us to know and to remember, his delay is not in any way a reflection of his lack of love. Verse 5. He loved Mary. He loved Martha. He agaped Lazarus. That's the word that's used. That sacrificial, selfless love. He loved these people, but he did delay two full days. Now, if you had been somebody watching this from the outside, you might have thought to yourself, okay, if Jesus has the power and if Jesus has the love, then why doesn't he do something? That, by the way, is the objection on a micro of what atheists typically say. If God is all-loving and God is all-powerful, then why does he not deal with evil? Why does he allow evil things to happen? We have the very same thing happening on a micro scale. Jesus loved them. He was powerful. And look what he allowed to unfold in their lives. Why? Because Jesus' timetable is not their timetable. And we are to be reminded in verse 6 that he waited two days because Jesus did things on God's timetable, not their timetable. As much as he loved them, that did not cause him to be moved by their request or their their prayer to act immediately. Sometimes we pray about things that, quite frankly, we pray the right thing, but we pray it at the wrong time. And sometimes God says yes, sometimes God says no, and sometimes God says wait. Because we ask for the right thing, but we are asking for the right thing, but the timing is not right. And we are not to conclude that God's inactivity in alleviating our suffering, that His inactivity or His slowness to move should in any way be construed as either a lack of power or a lack of love. Those who are watching this from the outside might have concluded, well, he really doesn't love them. But John says you can't conclude that. Well, maybe he really didn't have the power to stop that. We can't conclude that either. He is both loving and powerful. But listen, here is how his love for them was expressed. His love for them was expressed by saying, not now. 
You must wait. This has to unfold the way that God wants it to unfold. And we're not going to short-circuit this process just because you feel the pressure of the affliction. Sometimes the most loving answer to prayer is to simply say, not now. Longer. Wait. You have to wait. And the most loving thing for Jesus to do in this situation was to wait and not do anything so that they might come to understand that he is not just the healer of a disease. He is the resurrection and the life. He loved them enough to wait so that they could really see his power. I am convinced of this, that when skeptics and atheists and agnostics argue that God is not loving or God is not good, because if he were all loving and he were all good, he would eventually deal with the evil in this world. People who raise that objection, it's a, it's a non, it's, it doesn't follow. Just because God is good and just because God is loving does not mean that he has to deal with all the evil in this world. It might just be, it might just be that when we get to the end of time and we look back upon all the evil, we will say, you know, the most loving thing for God to do for his people was to allow us to go through that. That was the loving thing. And if he had short-circuited that, I would not have known his power like I do now because I went through that. Because Mary and Martha went through the death of Lazarus, they understood the power of Jesus in a fresh and a new way that they never could have if he had just simply healed their brother. They already knew he was the healer of the sick. What they needed to do was to see that he is the resurrection and the life. And in coming to an understanding of Lazarus, uh, Jesus as the resurrection and the life, they would glorify the Son. So does your theology have room for verse 4? That sickness and death are glorifying to God? And can you trust him to deal with sickness and death in his timetable, in his way, and to alleviate your affliction or your suffering, your weakness, according to his plan? Do you believe that it is possible that in your weakness the power of God is made manifest? I believe that's possible. I believe it is true. And thus God is glorified through those events. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful that your word does not, is not silent about the reason or purpose behind horrible things that happen to us. And the important lesson that we learn in this passage is that we can trust you and we thank you for that confidence. We thank you that you are worthy of our trust, our confidence, our love, and our adoration. And we confess to you that we are weak and frail and we are sinful and we have no right to measure your love for us or your favor upon us by what happens in our lives. But we are called to trust you and we pray that you would give us the grace to do that, to not kick against the processes that you use to sanctify your people, knowing that you are glorified through everything that you allow us to endure. And we do so in your timetable and according to your grace that you work things in our hearts that were not possible if it weren't for suffering and affliction. So we thank you for that truth. Help us, we pray, to trust you, to love you, and to see these things that work in our lives, that we might not resist you, but fully submit to you, and that you would receive the glory through that and for that. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.